Hey, Unchained listeners. As you know, it's hard keeping up with the fast-paced world of crypto, so we've got just the thing for you. Subscribe to our free Unchained daily newsletter at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. You'll get the latest crypto news and original articles from our reporters, as well as summaries of other happenings and bullet points, plus our meme of the day, all curated and written by our amazing team. It's still your no-hype resource for all things crypto, just in newsletter form. Sign up at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Again, the URL is unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Unconfirmed, insights and analysis from the top minds in crypto. I'm your host, Laura Shin. In this special episode I co-hosted with CNBC crypto trader, Ranu Nur and I talk with Olaf Carlson Wee, founder and CEO of crypto hedge fund Polychain Capital. We discuss his early career, what sets this crypto downturn apart from previous ones, and why we see hardcore tribalism in the crypto space. He also explains what types of investments and technologies he looks for, why we won't see one dominant blockchain, and why no one cares about incrementally faster bank settlement but paradigm shifts. It's a fun and insightful conversation with one of my most thoughtful sources. Please share it with your friends and family and enjoy the show. Your branding and website are the first things your audience will see. In the ever-expanding world of ICOs and blockchain startups, you need to stand out from the pack. OnRamp is a full-service creative and design agency that will help you amplify your brand with the perfect website, logo, collateral, or custom design project. Get big results in no time by visiting thinkonramp.com. Smart contracts are on the rise, and that trend will only continue. Security has become an absolute necessity, and QuantStamp is the standard for smart contract security for the blockchain. With a team of security experts dedicated to defeating the bad actors, QuantStamp is the gold standard for safer, more reliable smart contracts. Find out more at QuantStamp.com. So yes, as mentioned, today we do have a very special edition of Crypto Trader with not one, but two of the biggest names in crypto. On my right, I have Laura Shin, who's no stranger to crypto and no stranger to our show. And on my left, Olaf Carlson Wee, and he's certainly no stranger to crypto or to our show. Olaf, welcome. Laura, welcome. I know we've got a lot to get through today, so I'm going to kick it off and say, Olaf, a lot of our viewers are enamored by what you've done. And I want to take you back to the beginning. Very quickly, just give us a background of how you got to be sitting here in San Francisco today. So how far back you want me to go? Let's all, go all the way? Let's go back from when you wrote your undergrad thesis. Okay, so yeah, I found out about Bitcoin in the summer of 2011. Uh, I was going into my senior year of undergraduate studies, and I wrote my thesis on Bitcoin. You know, I, I talked about the Tor network and other kind of peer-to-peer networks powered through cryptography as well. Uh, but this was the beginning of me delving very, very deep into the veritable rabbit hole uh, that is kind of obsessive um, interest in cryptocurrencies. And why cryptocurrencies? What, what, where did you first become interested in, in crypto? So um, I had always been uh, very much a, a, a geek, right? Interested in um, kind of next generation technologies broadly. Um, I've always been super interested in virtual reality and more immersive computing and things like that. Um, so when I found out about Bitcoin, what was so fascinating to me is the idea of a pure internet uh, monetary system that's kind of fully uh, sovereign. Like it's it's governed by the users themselves um, and there's no dependence on any third party like a bank or a government uh, to define the rules of that system. Uh, so to me, this was kind of an obvious um, breakthrough and uh, the likes of which were unprecedented. Um, so I felt like I was seeing um, what to me felt like a somewhat 
obvious and and huge um, piece of technology that um, I was kind of surprised had never been created before, like native internet money. Um, as I learned more about Bitcoin, I realized that this was um, probably the largest technological breakthrough that I, I would um, that would happen in my lifetime. Um, and since I was going into my senior year of, of college and really trying to figure out what I wanted to do with my life, I felt that this was probably the highest leverage thing I could do. So you finish your undergrad thesis. What happens between then and the time that you join Coinbase? Uh, so after um, I, I finished the thesis, um, it was 2012. And for those of us that were around then, this was a very quiet time in cryptocurrency. Uh, Bitcoin was still pretty much just an open source uh, software project. There wasn't really a, a, a kind of, quote, industry around this. Um, so finding work at that time in cryptocurrency was was pretty pretty hard, especially uh, given, you know, when you, when you don't have very many skills, right? I was not like a, a, a professional cryptographer. I didn't have a PhD. I wasn't an expert in distributed systems or anything like that. Um, so I went to Washington State into the North Cascade Mountains, and I became a lumberjack. Um, I was there for several months, like throughout, throughout that summer and into the fall. Um, I then uh, went back to Minnesota, um, actually extended work on my undergraduate thesis, um, decided it was time to kind of double down on cryptocurrency, um, and made my way out to uh, Oakland. Um, and then here in the Bay Area, applied to a job at Coinbase. Started at Coinbase in early 2013 and uh, really never looked back. And you were the first hire, weren't you? Yes, I was the first hire at Coinbase. And something else that I find interesting about your biography is you were transacting almost primarily in cryptocurrency for several years. Yes. So I was at Coinbase for three and a half years. Uh, during that time, I was the head of risk uh, for most of my tenure. Um, I was paid exclusively in Bitcoin for the entirety of those three and a half years. Uh, so I was paying my rent in, in Bitcoin um, and doing yeah, a lot of transactions with Bitcoin to, to my friends. I was kind of trying to, as much as I could, kind of uh, live on, on Bitcoin. So you're the head of risk at Coinbase. What makes you leave Coinbase to start a fund, of all things? I was becoming very, very interested in the Ethereum ecosystem around that time. So uh, late 2015, early 2016, the Ethereum blockchain went live, and a lot of early kind of um, progress was being made. I was following that stuff really, really closely and um, felt that the, a lot of the problems uh, with Bitcoin were potentially going to be solved with Ethereum. Um, and so namely, you know, this concept of, of crowdfunding or, or ICOs, there had been a project on Bitcoin called Lighthouse, uh, written by Mike Kern, um, who's a former uh, core Bitcoin developer, uh, using the script uh, Bitcoin language. And he really failed to get a lot of traction with that Lighthouse project. It took him almost a year to, to develop. By contrast, um, with the ERC-20 standard, these kind of crowdfunding smart contracts, you know, kind of novice developers were able to spin these out very quickly and create Ethereum-compatible assets. And this idea of meta-assets on top of an underlying blockchain, um, people had been working on for a long time. Uh, back in the earlier Bitcoin days, people had worked on colored coins, uh, the counterparty asset system, the master coin asset system, none of these things had really taken off. Um, and I became convinced that it was due to the um, limitations of the underlying blockchain. Um, and it's, it's not to say that it's, uh, Ethereum is um, uh, purely uh, better or anything like that. There are trade-offs, right, between having a Turing-complete scripting language and having a simpler uh, uh, scripting language. But Ethereum, with that more flexible language, 
um, allowed people to do decentralized crowdfunding in a really efficient way. And that was just one use case I was seeing that felt like it was being enabled uniquely by Ethereum um, in a way that Bitcoin couldn't really service. So I was following all of that. Um, at the same time, I was uh, talking quite a lot with my friend Richard Crabe, who founded a company called Numeri. Um, Numeri was kind of a, a hedge fund that um, distributes uh, data to a community of machine learning uh, scientists who then um, work on that data to produce um, basically stock market picks. And then he combines all of those various machine learning models into one meta model and invests in the stock market on their behalf. Um, so he had kind of this, what I would call a, a kind of startup hedge fund, um, which was very high tech. And through a lot of conversations with him, I became interested in the idea of as the crypto space becomes multi-blockchain, um, to give you the backdrop again, in early 2016, Bitcoin represented about 90 to 95% of the market uh, share of all cryptocurrencies. So to, to make the, uh, a fund with the investment thesis of investing just in that other 5 or, or 10% uh, was very odd. And I think that um, in the early days, that was met with a lot of skepticism by a lot of people. But, you know, that kind of all of those stars aligned um, to have that idea incubated in, in my head and uh, launched the Polychain Fund then uh, that fall um, of 2016. And when you launched the Polychain Fund, where did the money come from to start the fund? It was a mishmash of um, angel investors, um, family offices, and other people that, you know, many of them I actually didn't know uh, before but I launched crypto the fund. assets weren't really an asset class in those days. I mean, mm -hmm. so you had to go and knock on people's doors and say, I want to take your money and I'm mm -hmm. going to invest your money in what? Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, a lot of the... the um, a lot of the value add here is navigating the landscape of new cryptocurrency projects. Um, anyone who's in this ecosystem knows that this is um, like drinking from a fire hose kind of thing uh, to keep track of all the various technologies and, and people working on, on new projects. Um, so a lot of the reason those early investors wanted um, to invest with me is gaining access to um, kind of this cutting edge of, of new projects that were coming out and also the due diligence process that goes along with um, those projects. So some of the early things we invested in were, for example, um, Tezos, um, as well as uh, the, the MakerDAO project with the MKR uh, token. And I think that these were some sort of under-the-radar uh, projects, um, yet both those projects had actually been around um, since kind of 2014-2015 era. Um, and things that I had been following for a long time. So fast forward a couple of years, we're in 2018 today, mm -hmm. and you guys must be one of the biggest funds in the industry. Uh, if I look at the last filing that you guys did, you were over a billion dollar fund. I think you mentioned that that came from a $4 million investment. Well, the, it's not quite that simple, but the, the fund launched with uh, $4 million, um, and we have grown precipitously since then. So how did you go from being a $4 million fund to over a billion dollars? Mm -hmm. um, it's it's a, a long and arduous uh, journey, um, but really um, it, was, it has been a joy as well. Um, so I launched this really in, in my bedroom um, and was um, kind of doing what I'd always done, which was investing in cryptocurrencies. Um, so, you know, I had a long history of, of you know, all the core... Um, things that you need to set up in order to, um, you know, run a fund like this, 
I've been doing these either at Coinbase or personally for, for many years. So I think I was well positioned to um, kind of manage these investments and, and start investing in new things. Uh, but really, a lot of what I spend my time doing is talking to new early stage teams. Uh, so people who are dreaming of some new wild technology, and often they're very, very talented technical architects who want to make this a reality. So back then and now, actually, most of my days um, are pretty similar. Um, it's reading technical specifications about these projects, talking to talented developers behind these projects, and kind of you know working towards uh, getting into I- investments. And how do you manage the expectations of investors or the emotions of investors in a market like this? Uh, so we are very, very transparent upfront with our investors um, that this is an incredibly volatile market. Um, and that we are long-term investors, and we encourage them to to be long-term investors as well. Uh, so, to me, you know, you know, there's a there's very much a short-termism in the cryptocurrency space that I think is really unfortunate. I think a lot of people think about months or quarters uh, when we really should be thinking about years and decades. Um, just as far as um, you know, how big this is, and what kind of social and societal you know effect we'll see over the long term. So when we invest in a new project, the goal is, is really to have that project become an infrastructural component of the entire internet. The goal is not to uh, make some money this quarter or something like that. How do your LPs feel about you evaluating your fund on such a long-term, on such a long I mean, period? We're very, very transparent about that upfront. So if they don't like that, they shouldn't invest with us. And do you quote a time horizon up front? I mean, when you raise money or raising money, do you raise money and tell your investors we're looking at a five, ten-year investment? Or You know, because it's kind of an evergreen uh, uh, vehicle, we're really, there's really no time horizon. We're really holding forever. One thing that I love about your story, too, is I know that you've been through many of these boom and bust cycles. Yep. Because even when you did your thesis, as far as I remember... You came up with the idea, and then the price crashed to like 90%, and your professors mm-hmm. were like, Bitcoin's dead. You need to change your thesis topic. <laughs> so I yeah. think... My professor actually sent me an article that was in Wired called The Rise and Fall of Bitcoin, and said, now that Bitcoin is dead, what are you going to write your thesis on? Um, and bit, you know, to be fair, the price of Bitcoin had crashed from $31 to $2, um, which, you know, by the magnitude of today's drop... Um, right, we've still it, got a long way to go. We, we, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we'd be down in kind of the um, hundreds of dollars, maybe. So to me, um, you know, this is the, the what I mean by there's a certain short termism when it's like, why, you know, what, what do you really think this is? Um, is this a way to make money in this quarter, or is this a new technological paradigm, the likes of which we haven't seen since the internet? Um, and if you think it's the latter, I don't know why people are so caught on focusing on month-to-month price movements. Um, I've also, as you said, been through, this is, I, I think, what I would call the third proper crypto winter that I've, I've been through. Um, you know, the first one, I would say, was uh, really 2012. Uh, the second one was kind of 2014, 2015. Um, and now I'd say 2018 is, is kind of uh, the third one. This is really when most of the hard work gets done, though. Uh, the, those of us who are in this uh, for the long term just keep building. Um, and it's with a lot less distraction in a way. And uh, tell us about the technological paradigm that you described where you said that's what you're building. So what 
has the internet been up until now and what what do you think you're building now with these investments one of the things i like to say is that um cryptocurrencies are enabling the second business model of the internet uh the first business model is this idea of um, a centralized entity uh, which actually extracts revenue from services this is a very traditional concept of a business right Um, and the way that manifests itself in terms of internet architecture is massive siloed centralized platforms with huge user bases um, that they kind of extract uh, rent from on that platform. So this is, you know, the Facebooks of the world, Twitter, um, Etsy, eBay, Uber, Airbnb, all these massive, you know, some of them are, are kind of two-sided marketplaces. Other of them, others of them are more like um, peer-to-peer uh, network topologies, kind of. Um, but there's a platform, it's owned by a central entity and they extract revenue. Um, to me, the second... Um, and I, I hesitate to call it a business model because it's not really a business model, but it can lead to massive wealth creation for all participants. Very similar to how um, Facebook has led to massive um, um, wealth creation for the shareholders of Facebook, and it also ostensibly has provided some level of service for its billions of users. Right? Yeah. Um, it's an opt-in thing. Nobody's forced to use it. Right? With a cryptocurrencies, so for example, Ethereum itself. Um, we're not really looking at a centralized entity extract, uh, say, transaction fees from the Ethereum network. Um, what you're really seeing is a distributed uh, peer-to-peer network where the, the users of the network, i.e. the kind of users of the Ethereum blockchain, are also the owners of the, of the Ethereum blockchain. And so the wealth creation um, that happens there is, is for user owners. You don't have this divisive idea of uh, shareholders of Facebook and users on the platform who ultimately and fundamentally have somewhat of an adversarial relationship because at some level, um, the shareholders just want to extract uh, value from the users, uh, whereas the users just want the platform to be useful. And you see this clash as far as, you know, banner ads and, uh, um, you know, dark UI patterns, like it's really hard to close your account and closing your account takes uh, 20 steps and things like that. Uh, Whereas in in these kind of peer-to-peer systems, um, you don't have that idea of value extraction um, it's actually, you know, everyone wants the um, network value to, to grow um, and contribute to the network. Um, what you see is a very, very hardcore tribalism uh, come out of that, uh, that user-owner model. And anyone who's been in cryptocurrency, I see you nodding your head, Laura, um, you see very hardcore tribalism. Um, and, you know, if you want a visceral example of this, search uh, Bitcoin tattoo on Google. Um, you will see some crazy things Um, that you maybe didn't expect, right? And this is what comes with being a kind of user owner. Um, So to me, you know, I think it's a really new uh, model. You know, this is, it's really is brand new since the creation of Bitcoin. Uh, But I think it's really, really powerful. Um, And the idea that we could have uh, peer-to-peer protocols that replaced many of the um, end use cases for these current kind of Web2 platforms um, with a, a fully peer-to-peer system that's owned by the users. So think about Facebook, um, if it was on a Web3 or blockchain architecture and owned by the users. Um, I know that's somewhat vague. There's a lot of steps between here and there. There's a huge amount of technical complexity that we need to solve to get there. Uh, but this idea of a distributed, decentralized, or user-owned web um, is, is really exciting to me. And I really do think it could end up being um, in hindsight, like if we look back in 10 or 20 years, it could be a very obvious and intuitive part of the evolution of the internet. So we actually are creating the ultimate network effect. So crypto has that allowed us to create the ultimate network effect. 
Imagine this. You dedicate countless hours of hard work to creating a smart contract only to be hacked in mere minutes. If you think that can't happen, think again. We hear that $10 billion has been raised through smart contracts, but over $300 million of that has already been compromised. Hackers are hungry for more, so security is not just critical to your success, it's an absolute necessity. And that is where QuantStamp, the standard for smart contract security, comes in. With a team of security audit experts dedicating to defeating the bad guys, the Quant stamp of approval is your solution for safer smart contracts. Find out how we can be the gold standard for security at quantstamp.com. OnRamp is a full-service creative and design agency that has helped numerous companies, including many in the blockchain and crypto space, maximize their brand awareness, gain traction, and accelerate growth. Whether you're a startup company launching a new brand or an established brand exploring a new campaign, OnRamp has you covered. OnRamp has a passion for boosting business results and can help with everything from logo and website design to full creative execution. Focus on your core technology and leave the rest to OnRamp. To learn more and see how they've helped passionate entrepreneurs achieve their dreams, go to thinkonramp.com. Well, if we were to look back at 2017, we've got the value of perfect hindsight. How would you categorize 2017? And this is going to lead up to what do you see happening for the rest of 2018? Mm-hmm. I mean, 2017, very similar to the uh, growth we saw in, in mid-2011, as well as the growth we saw in um, a couple different phases in 2013. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's really like a media cycle uh, where, you know, there's a lot of coverage of, of this uh, whole asset class and, and technology leading to a whole bunch of new users coming into this and, of course, speculating on these assets, leading to kind of a, a media coverage, right? There's kind of a, a cycle and a feedback. Which is good or there. bad? Um, it just leads to cycles. I wouldn't call it good or, or bad. Uh, the way cryptocurrency grows is, is massive hype cycles and crashes, and then you end on a plateau that's higher than where you started. That's kind of the story of cryptocurrency. Um, and if you look at um, you know, many companies that operate in the cryptocurrency space, that's what their growth looks like as well. Um, you know, at Coinbase, you know, we would see massive inflows of users um, and then um, you know, people kind of, kind of leaving the platform. But you always end on a higher plateau than where you started. And so it's through these kind of staggered, um, very, very aggressive cycles that we make progress that almost looks like stair steps kind of. But I think for the people who haven't seen this before and haven't been in this for a while, um, it can be really scary because it's so it's so volatile and it's so bumpy. Now, there is a thesis that says that the higher the prices or the, or the quicker the prices move up, the more interest there is in a sector, the more investment there is mm-hmm. in a sector, and therefore the more development there is in a sector. And so the cycle does this and it goes higher and higher mm-hmm. and higher. Mm-hmm. But if you remember 1998 when the internet crashed, we had a lull for a couple of years where it was very hard to attract attention. And the reason is because we had burnt too many of the retail investors. Mm-hmm. Is there a risk that the 2017-2018 correction that we saw has scared away investors to the point where we may not get as many investors into worthwhile projects as we should have got and almost get us into an internet winter or a crypto winter, which is similar to the internet winter? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think that we are not um, far enough along for um, uh, the kind of internet winter. Um, I think most of the people investing in cryptocurrencies today are still really niche uh, groups. I don't think that um, it has hit the kind of mainstream uh, quality of um, 
you know, investors that you saw in like the 99, 2000 internet bubble. Um, that was also very much limited to the U.S. equities markets, uh, whereas this is a, a global phenomenon. So you would expect the order of magnitude to be much higher um, if we were to see that kind of scale. Um, and in fact, the valuations of all these cryptocurrencies combined is much, much lower um, than uh, internet stocks were in, say, 99, 2000. From a technological point of view, we achieved certain things in 2017, which set the platforms for new things that we're going to see in 2018. Like, I'll give you an example. ZeroX created a great protocol for us to create decentralized mm -hmm. exchanges. Mm -hmm. Do you think we're going to get an influx or this huge growth in these decentralized exchanges now? And what other examples are there of technology that was launched or built in 17 and, and that you believe we're going to see great patterns in 2018? Mm -hmm. So I do think we're seeing very solid growth in the decentralized exchange ecosystem. Um, while I think the absolute numbers here are very small, the growth is very good. Um, I also think that you know people view decentralized exchanges, for example, um, as an alternative to centralized exchanges. Uh, but to me, with all of these technologies, what I care about are novel use cases that are beyond what was possible before. So, for example, if you have an autonomous or decentralized um, organization, like a DAO. Um, so this is like a series of smart contracts with capital in them governed by the underlying owners of those smart contracts. Those types of entities, now they're not legal entities, they're really just smart contract systems, uh, they can't trade on um, centralized exchanges, right? Yeah. Because like, what's your email address is, is, a, is a showstopper, <laughs> right? Um, but DAOs can trade on decentralized exchanges and they can enter into legal arrangements with other smart contracts. And here I don't, I don't mean legal arrangements, really, I mean kind of software-driven, um, rule-based, you know, math-based arrangements. Um, so to me, that's what's exciting uh, about decentralized exchanges, uh, is not just um, the, the kind of incremental advantages they have over centralized exchanges, like the fact that they're non-custodial and things like that, uh, but rather how do these enable new use cases we never dreamed of before. And so across this... Um, whole crypto ecosystem, that's what I care about. I don't care about um, incrementally faster bank settlement. It's just not something that interests me. I think many people would share my view that that's not why I got into this. Um, what I care about is, is really the kind of paradigm shifts um, that we're seeing. And what would need to be built in the technology stack, I guess you would call it, mm -hmm. to make things happen? Like what would need to be built now and then what comes after that and what would be built five or ten years in the future? So uh, oftentimes this, what I, refer, is what I refer to the Web3 stack of technologies. And so a really simple thought experiment is suppose you wanted to build a peer-to-peer -peer version of what today is a centralized web service. Um, so say Twitter. Um, if you want to fully decentralize Twitter, there's a whole stack of technologies that needs to be decentralized underneath it. Uh, things as simple as the server client architecture um, that Twitter relies on to operate, you need to have a fully decentralized version. So then you have a system. Like file storage? or Yeah. like So then like the IPFS and Filecoin system could potentially be part of that stack that goes into building a decentralized Twitter. Um, on top of that, it's, it's simple. You know, these are simple things you take for granted. Like um, you enter your email address and your password to log into your Twitter account. How does um, login, or rather, more specifically, identity attestation uh, work in a decentralized Twitter environment? You need a whole new uh, paradigm. You need a whole new model. So the stage we're in in cryptocurrency is building those thin slices of what I would call the Web3 stack that can all add up to end-user applications. Again, though, to just reiterate this point, what I care about is not necessarily uh, Twitter but decentralized. 
It's really with this decentralized Web3 stack, what are the applications that you can uniquely build that we cannot imagine in a centralized environment? So in that spirit, let's talk about something that happened last year, which was probably quite significant, and that's CryptoKitties. Mm-hmm. Now, mm-hmm. obviously, the first part of CryptoKitties was the fact that you could trade in kitties and breed kitties on a blockchain. But from what you're saying to you, that wasn't the exciting part. Yeah. So, um, you know, the actual app of I want to breed a kitty on, on CryptoKitties was like fun, fun and cool. Um, but the, the breakthrough here is the idea of non-fungible assets. So these are, you know, in this case, the kitties themselves, but they could represent anything in a video game, say a sword or a piece of armor or your avatar itself. Um, and the fact that other developers around the world can permissionlessly um, interact with those underlying assets and the underlying data associated with them. So there was, for example, a project um, out of Asia called Crypto Dragons. And in Crypto Dragons, you would actually have to provably destroy your CryptoKitties assets in order to gain experience points for your Crypto Dragon. Oh right? my god, you'd have to kill your CryptoKitty? Yes. Whoa. To get a dragon. Wow. <laughs> oh, the dragon's much better. Okay, that's Well, okay. you know, it's, it's, so it's, it's one of these things where now you have interoperability between games around the underlying uh, uh, cryptocurrency, you know, non-fungible crypto assets. So you could imagine, for example, a sword or a piece of armor... Um, in, in a game actually being carried across different games. So you kill your kitty and you put yeah. your sword on your dragon. So, awesome. And so it you, sounds you even can better. think about like an in-game avatar actually being your avatar in multiple games. And this is all, mm-hmm. you know, this is ultimately like a ledger entry on a blockchain that you control and you carry with you from game to game. So it's like a totally different paradigm for, for game development. And game development is just one narrow area in which this kind of open, interoperable, permissionless Web3 stack has, you know, unusual emergent properties for the end user. And this is the stuff that's exciting to me because the idea of carrying your sword across video games, it's, it's like, um, it, you know, a video game becomes almost like one big video game, right? Yeah. Um, it's kind of like how in Minecraft you have many different sub-communities, but like if Minecraft was a protocol, right, that anyone could build on and, and extend, um, and, and it wasn't kind of controlled by one central entity. So, that, you know, that to me is an early example. And obviously CryptoKitties today is a toy. Not very many people use it. It's kind of like a, it was kind of a flash in the pan, the game itself, right? Um, but it's an early indicator of, you know, how these underlying technologies do actually create, um, you know, novel emergent properties for end users. Like the underlying architecture might not be super sexy, um, and this is mostly what we're investing in. Like, why do you care about a Turing-complete scripting language and the ERC-721 non-fungible token standard, right? Well, it's because at the end of the day, this can lead to really interesting emergent properties. And this is I actually similarly you saw with the Lightning Network, um, which is the kind of layer two transactional network built on top of Bitcoin. Um, you saw, um, for example, a project called Satoshi's Place that was kind of an imitation of the Reddit um, place, which was a, mad, a huge project to actually pixel by pixel in a distributed manner, uh, draw a, a canvas. Um, and in the Satoshi's place, you would use a one Satoshi, so the smallest payment possible um, in, in the Bitcoin protocol, um, one Satoshi payment in order to color a pixel. Um, and that kind of micropayment game, um, again, you really couldn't have before cryptocurrencies. You couldn't, you know, it, it was, it's very hard to imagine this kind of totally 
you know, peer-to-peer, extremely micro-payment style construction of something that's that's larger than any individual contributor. So those are two very exciting um, developments. What other exciting? What other things have excited you because you can see their application in future blockchain applications? Um, so I'm, you know, I personally spend more time focused on uh, underlying protocols uh, that I think will lead to emergent exciting applications more than I spend time on trying to figure out what those applications so are. So let's talk about the protocols that mm-hmm. excite you. Yep. Um, so there, I, I, I think we were talking about this uh, just before we started filming, but the, I think that we are starting um, perhaps about an 18-month um, uh, uh, time period where we're going to see all the most exciting launches we've seen uh, since Ethereum. And I think that an appropriate bookend here uh, is the EOS launch um, in, in, at the beginning of June, um, and I think it will last for about 18 months. And the, the projects that we're going to see go live in, in this era are very, very exciting. Uh, one is, is Tezos, uh, which is kind of ha- has a um, in-blockchain-level governance system, as well as um, a, a kind of new smart contract uh, scripting language. Um, another is uh, Definity. I, I won't go into too much depth on each of these projects because they're relatively technically complicated, but uh, Definity has a novel consensus mechanism on on-chain governance uh, system, among other things. Then you're looking at Cosmos, which is like a, a cross-blockchain or inter-blockchain uh, communication system. Filecoin, which we mentioned earlier, is an incentivization layer for a distributed file storage system. And then uh, Polkadot, which is another uh, cross-blockchain communication system. Um, yeah, a little bit different architecture than Cosmos, but um, some, of the, some of the similar goals. Um, and so to me, these are... You know, a whole combination of projects that I think are, um, you know, the most exciting things we've seen since the launch of Ethereum in 2015. And I know you've invested in a number of these projects. Do you imagine that there will be one winner amongst all the smart contract platforms and that, or that there will be multiple? Or yeah. So um, very much like the name of our firm, uh, Polychain, uh, very much, we very much believe in a Polychain future. Um, I do think that there are irreconcilable trade-offs uh, that must occur within these protocols that um, lend themselves to being better for certain types of applications. Um, so, for example, I don't think it makes sense to build um, a social network and an air traffic control system and an accounting service using the same programming language. And I think it may not make sense to uh, build those types of very, very disparate applications on the same blockchain. Um, so I do think that we're going to see many, many different blockchains in the future. Um, a lot of this, we, we will see uh, regional um, preferences driving uh, success of blockchains. Um, I think that we've seen empirically a lot of uh, regional differentiation between uh, North America and Asia on kind of which is the preferred blockchain platform. I also think that you know there really are trade-offs between these various systems. There's different teams working on them, different communities, uh, different models of governance. And so I think that the, um, this, just the, the space for experimentation here is massive. And this is a multi-dimensional problem. It's not just transactional throughput. Is it is it good or is it bad? It's like not that simple. Uh, so we're talking about like a four or five-dimensional problem where you can kind of move sliders um, to make these trade-offs on and many many different aspects of, of the underlying protocol. So to me, we are in going to um, you know we're we're moving towards a future where there's many many different blockchain protocols um, and they are useful for different kinds of niches or things. I don't think this is a winner-take-all uh, kind so, of model. 
So some people do have the theory, though, that because money and network effects or network effects matter in money, that there will be at least, even if not just one dominant, at least a handful dominant. But you really think it'll be more like the world we have today with many foreign currencies? Well, I, I would, you know, I would challenge that perspective um, in, in that empirically what we see in the cryptocurrency ecosystem is a dispersion uh, rather than a consolidation. And you don't um, think that's just because it's early? Um, I think there is more dispersion because it's early, um, but I do think that it, it's not consolidation around one system. There seem to be two schools of thought around this. One school of thought says that it's going to be like you know um, TCP/IP running the internet and SMTP running e- email, and those go the other way. And then there's others which say which they're going to be much more specialized, which is what what Olaf kind of says. And I think probably with those, only time will tell. Speaking of blockchains, your favorite blockchain plays. Today, I mean, we've got the, the blockchains that launched historically, which were the, the Ethereum's and the Tezos, etc. But there are a whole lot of other new blockchains which are launching to solve specific problems. Do you have any favorites that you're looking at at the moment? Uh, yeah, so those projects that I mentioned mm-hmm. on this 18-month time horizon, um, the, these are some of my favorite kind of... Now, again, keep in mind that this is specifically um, layer one kind of generalizable blockchains. I think there are a lot of other projects that are very exciting in this ecosystem that are a little bit higher level, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but if we're talking about um, extensible layer one blockchains, those are the most exciting ones for me. What are the most exciting projects of 2018 for you? I, I would say um, Tezos, um, whose launch is coming up uh, very soon. By the time this is live, it might actually have launched. Laura mentioned in a tweet uh, earlier this week that they finally got some good publicity. Uh, I don't know about good publicity, but some balanced reporting. Yeah, and I don't really care about the publicity. You care about the tick. Well, yeah, you know, I just think that um, if it works, um, that's what matters. If it can drive an ecosystem, that's what matters. So to me, you know, I think uh, Tezos is is very exciting. We first invested in that, like I said earlier, in late 2016. and have followed that project and been big supporters of um, Arthur for a long time. I think that there are a few other projects that are planned to launch this year. Um, now, software development timelines are notoriously hard to, to, to kind of pin down. Uh, goalposts move often. Uh, but some of the projects that I think could go live in 2018 are uh, Cosmos, uh, this inter-blockchain communication system, Definity, um, which uses a threshold relay consensus mechanism, um, which leads to just very, very fast um, confirmation times, very, very fast blocks, very, very fast consensus as well as a uh, Definity also has a uh, WebAssembly or WASM-based compiler system uh, that can interact with the um, Definity virtual machine. So this gets pretty specific, but on a high level, what that means is that uh, developers will be able to write smart contracts on Definity with many different programming languages. So I think my question goes back to say, these are all great projects, but they were projects that people would have invested in in 2016 and 2017. And I think a lot of our viewers are saying, great, we may have not invested in Tezos at the beginning when they were raising cash, and similarly with Definity, but what can we invest in today to almost do what Olaf's doing? I think that is actually very hard to do. Um, a lot of what we invest in are private deals. You know, so I think that you know, it's possible to uh, buy things in the public kind of cryptocurrency markets mm. once they go live, but... You know, today, again, like I said, I think the many of the most exciting launches of, you know, the next 18 months are ahead of us um, rather than behind us. Well, many of our viewers are watching this um, 
listening to what you're saying, and what you're saying is obviously very exciting for the future, but we're living through a crypto winter. Now, you mentioned that this is your third crypto winter. Is this the same as the other two, or should we be worried? Um, I think, you know, it's hard for me to emphasize how much smaller the entire cryptocurrency space was in the last two uh, crypto winters. So I actually think the momentum during this uh, veritable winter um, is much stronger than it was uh, back then. Uh, the narrative at that time was really that um, cryptocurrency was dead um, and that this was a flash in the pan and kind of a faded project. I no longer feel like that is the kind of common conception. I feel like people do think this is here to stay. It's just a question of how big is it really. So in the previous two winters that you mentioned, the question of whether cryptocurrencies was going to survive was a thing. And in this one, it's not really whether they're going to survive, but really how big is it going to be? Is that a, is yes. that, is that a good summary? Yes, I think it is. So do you think we've got to a point where the naysayers, the people that say that blockchain will never work, mm-hmm. that decentralization will never work, do you think that that's all gone away? I think more and more that's actually the contrarian take. Um, in the past, it was very easy to say um, Bitcoin will die because it really had never lived almost. Like it, it wasn't anything. Um, I think that now, you know, when you see various CEOs of large financial institutions or banks saying that uh, Bitcoin is a fraud, Bitcoin um, will fade away or, or things like this, um, it feels kind of like, you know, the, the people at Marriott talking about Airbnb, or it feels kind of like, you know, the, the postman talking about email, right? Um, it's, it's like you don't say you wouldn't have to make a statement unless your interests were threatened. Um, so to me, for the first time, these people are forced to comment on cryptocurrency. Um, and the fact that they are against it is very much unsurprising. To me, I do think that among the common person, um, among common, you know, the normal person, I think that that is more and more a contrarian take, that actually cryptocurrency um, is, is all tulips and will die. Now, what about this view that a lot of the big CEOs have, Jamie Dimon to name one of them, said something about he believes in the blockchain but doesn't believe in cryptocurrency. Do you believe that the two can be separated? No. So you believe that with Jamie Dimon saying that he believes in the blockchain, he actually just believes in fancy databases? Um, I don't think he knows what he's saying. <laughs> okay. So you're saying to our viewers, hang in there, this is a crypto winter. It's a crypto winter like no other winter, but the underlying development is solid and you're still super confident that we're about to enter this tech this technological era that is going to make an impact on the world bigger than mm-hmm. we've ever seen. Well, I, you know, I've been saying that and believing it for uh, seven years now. So I feel like a broken record at this point, but, but yes. But you've been vindicated over the last seven years. Uh, yes, I, I think so, mostly. So that is all the time that we have here for today. Uh, a big special thank you to both of my guests, Laura Shin, who is the founder of the two podcasts, Unchained and Unconfirmed. Laura, if our viewers want to get more information about your podcasts, where can they go? You should check me out on Twitter at Laura Shin, S-H-I-N. And you can also check out the websites, unchainedpodcast.co and unconfirmedpodcast.com. Now, Laura, you did a feature on Olaf in one of your previous publications. Yes, I wrote a big cover story for Forbes that talked about Olaf and his fund and the whole initial coin offering craze. And that is also available on my Twitter feed. Olaf, thank you very much for hosting us. I know you're not a, a big guy in the media and certainly don't talk about your investments very much. If our viewers do want more information about what you guys are doing, Polychain and the fund, where can they go? 
um, I think you can learn a fair amount on our website, uh, polychain.capital. And that's all the time we have here for today. Remember that if you want more coverage, follow me on YouTube, hit the subscribe button now.